Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to Crime and Science Radio. We have a great program for you today. Should we abandon use of the lie detector test as junk science? We have an interview with Dr. Morton Pavel, uh, who is a cardiologist and uh, a specialist in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease. In addition to a practice that he had for many years, um, before retiring, as uh, he is now, he held a teaching position, a clinical professor at Indiana University School of Medicine, and was a consulting cardiologist for Care Group Incorporated, the division of St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis. Uh, in addition to those years of work, which included over 125 uh, publications that his medical research has been uh, part of, uh, and a textbook, a well-known textbook, clinical phonocardiography. Um, he has uh, also served on editorial boards of several national medical journals and spoken throughout the United States. So we're very interested in talking to him today. Um, welcome to the program. Yeah, uh, Martin, welcome. We're really glad to have you here. You know, you and I are a lot alike. We both practice cardiology, and I see you were involved in cardiac rehab as I was, and you also was president of your local American Heart Association. I did all those things, too, so we actually have a whole lot in common. So let me ask you, what drew you to medicine, and particularly cardiovascular medicine, in the first place? Uh, well, actually, even as a kid growing up, I used to, I loved science, and I liked to do things to, that would help the human condition, I guess, if you will, and combining those things together, I saw medicine was a great avenue to pursue. So uh, I liked uh, the combination of both uh, science and research, and uh, so this, this allowed me to apply both good science and the care of individual patients on, a, on that personal level, at the same time did allow me to explore general issues and share my results with and ideas uh, with a larger audience, and that's what really uh, energized me. So in the process, I was able to to uh, write and publish over 125 research articles and uh, basically three books. Uh, so it was really very gratifying, and uh, uh, hopefully the results will be positive in, in a larger sense. Well, speaking of those publications, you've written a couple of really cool books. Um, one's called Snake Oil is Alive and Well, and the other is Health Tips, Myths, and Tricks. Can you tell us a little bit about each one of those, how they came about, what they're about? Yeah, well, I, that's a, a good question. Uh, actually, as a representative of a scientific medical professional mainstream, I uh, realize that very few people in, in our with our kinds of background, we're really coming out against certain misconceptions or a lot of misconceptions because we were so busy with our individual practices and our own projects that we couldn't get the word out to the general public. So I felt as a, as a representative of this scientific medical professional mainstream, if you will, I attempted to provide a counterweight to all these massive doses of misinformation that you see almost daily about health matters and all kinds of communication provided often by deliberate self-serving distortions of the truth, to be perfectly honest. Modern physical and psychological science can, can expose the existence of lots of myths, how they're formed, why they persist to this day. The same scientific principles that we've been involved with for so long can be used to understand this confusion, especially if we look at some of the psychological research. And in the process, we can help to prevent the individual from falling prey to so many potential disastrous health and financial results. So my books, basically, those two that we're referring to, really attempted to fill the gap in general knowledge by exposing 
how the faulty thought processes arise, how, how we get to faulty conclusions, and in the process I also sought to bring attention to this many so-called uh, authorities, if you will, who have provided lots of misinformation, whether on TV or other media. So that was my main purpose, was to point these, uh, these many factors out. Um, among other works, you've also written an article for Skeptical Inquirer that drew our attention. It's one of my favorite magazines, by the way. Um, the article is called The Lie Detector Test Revisited. Lie Detector in quotes. <laughs> a great example of junk science. And you made a really strong case for abandoning the use of the polygraph, as uh, more formally known. So let's start with a little background on the test. When did lie detector tests first come into use? Uh, let me backtrack just a second to explain why I got interested in this, because it, it in a sense, doesn't make a sense why, why, as a physician, we get involved with this. But it turns out... I was watching television one day with my wife, and there was one of the Who Done It programs, and a woman was brutally murdered in her apartment, and she had a former boyfriend with whom she had an altercation. He became a prime suspect. So they applied the lie detector, so-called lie detector test, to this man, and he failed. So... They took him to court, and fortunately, because of a lack of firm evidence, physical evidence, he got exonerated. But the, the community that he was working in or dealing with uh, made him uh, an outcast. In fact, he was, almost, he was actually threatened with violence and that sort of thing because the community felt that he was guilty, based primarily on that lie detector so-called test. About six months later, they found the real murderer and mm -hmm. brought him to justice and finally exonerated the individual that failed the uh, lie detector test. So that, that caused me to wonder, what about these tests? We in medicine apply tests all the time to determine the presence or absence of disease. Many times if a person has a disease, they will, they will show up the test being positive, and many times they don't have the disease, the test will show up negative. So we evaluate tests all the time for positivity or negativity. So I said, hey, this, this seems like it ought to apply to lie detector tests. So then I delved into the literature and uh, the scientific research and realized that basically that test is a really a hoax. And that's what caused me to get into this. So, <clears throat> in answer to your first question, um, the test has been around for nearly a century, which also says something in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, it employs what's called a polygraph, as we've used that term, uh, well, a.k.a. a lie detector, and which, during questioning, continuously records an examinee's blood pressure, respiration, pulse rate, and skin resistance for many, many years, and that's the basis of this test. So that's the, the uh, lie detector test as we know it even to this day. It's basically been unchanged really since it's starting, since it started. Mm. Not too much in, well, I mean, there are some basics that don't change, but, but, but but something, you know, uh, some of our ideas about things have changed in the last hundred years. So yeah, let's, sure. let's talk about the basic test procedure. Um, how how are they uh, given? What, what happens in the light of yes. test? Yes, actually the usual format compares these physiological responses to which I referred, and they compare these responses in response to questions, the questions are divided into two categories. One are the so-called relevant questions, and the other are the so-called control questions. Now, the control questions refer to the subject's past 
and are usually broad in, in scope. And in other words, it's the kinds of things that we all sooner or later are going to lie about, and it should be uh, obvious, should be detectable that we're lying. For instance, these control questions might be, have you ever betrayed anyone who trusted you in your life? Uh, so that's one of the, the types of control questions that we get. Mm -hmm. By contrast, relevant questions ask about a crime of which an individual is suspected. Uh, so a person who's supposedly telling the truth is assumed to fear control questions more than relevant questions, since the control questions are the kinds of things we all lie about. And a greater response to control questions, questions therefore leads to a judgment of no deception, interestingly enough. By contrast, the pattern of greater physiologic response to relevant questions more than control questions leads to the diagnosis of so-called deception. If no difference is found between the response, responses of relevance and control questions, the test is then considered inconclusive, either, either guilt or innocence. Uh, so basically that's the, the underlying principle upon which this test depends. Well, how does it work? I mean, physiologically, what, what are you looking for when you do this test, and um, how do the answers affect that? Right. right. This, is, this is interesting because this is, this is where the test is really highly suspect. The test actually records the activity of the so-called sympathetic branch of the involuntary nervous system, which, with which you're quite familiar, I'm sure, Doug. Mm. Uh, that influences the heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and perspiration, which we can measure. And this part of the nervous system is active at all times. However, it increases during periods of excitement, rage, anxiety, fear, or fright, any of which could be caused by lying. But deception, however, is a cognitive function that defies direct measurement. We've never come up with a, uh, a clear means to determine lying by any physical measure. And so no scientific studies have ever shown that the emotional response linked to lying could be measured. Moreover, reactions associated with lying and other assumed emotional stresses can be quite variable. And that's another bugaboo on this test. Some people actually may remain calm with a gun at their head. By contrast, others may respond excessively with heart thumping and sweaty palms. That's simply shaking someone's hand. And the polygraph examination itself often causes fear and anxiety. And if such responses are excessive in response to any given question, then one may be deemed to have failed that particular question. So that's where the, uh, the, the uh, uh, test really uh, tends to uh, be very suspect. Well, you've given us an idea of some of the factors, but let's talk more about that, about the physical or psychological factors can cause someone to erroneously fail the test. And I'm sure people wonder if there are any medications or techniques that someone can use to pass it when they are actually not telling the truth. Yes, and that's, that's an extremely pertinent question. <clears throat> and as I stated, <clears throat> excuse me, the so-called relevant questions may not produce the expected exaggerated responses by the suspected wrongdoer. Moreover, even a felon can learn to overreact to control questions, making him or her seem truthful. So this is the first obvious way to overcome the uh, or so-called fool the test. Any of these responses can be blunted or eliminated by certain drugs that suppress the so-called sympathetic nervous system, drugs that have been in common use for many years, and I can certainly attest to this. Uh, and the ability to pass these tests can be enhanced either by learning or coaching on how to purposefully reduce responses to the expected questions or by taking a uh, 
sympathetic blocker, we call it, uh, to uh, blunt somebody's response that could easily cause a confusion in, the, in evaluating the uh, results of the test. Well, uh, on that same line, along that, that with the medications beta blockers and whatnot you were talking about, mm -hmm. some people think that sociopaths are just beta blockers, you know, internally, that they don't feel, they don't get upset, they don't get angry, they just kind of cruise through life like a great white shark. Um, right. Is that true or false? I mean, the, the sociopaths, are they more able to, to, to fool the test? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's been any direct research uh, on that specific subject. However, it's really highly likely for anyone who is mentally deranged in this manner should be capable of perpetrating horrible crimes calmly and without remorse. And this kind of emotional pattern could easily be transferred to reactions during a polygraph test. So I would certainly uh, assume what you're, what you're saying is, is absolutely correct. It's, uh, a sociopath could uh, easily uh, overcome uh, this kind of test just by virtue of their uh, mental makeup. And that's actually had been, uh, I can't recall a specific example, but uh, there was a serial killer that had killed numerous uh, individuals many years ago that passed multiple tests but was obviously guilty, and that is, is kind of what you're getting at, I believe, uh, in this response. Yeah, I think the Green River Killer, if I remember correctly, was able to That's do correct. That's correct. Yeah. Green River yeah. And what's interesting is when the, they arrested him, the officer that had tracked him down basically sat him down, looked him in the eye, and said, Gary Ridgeway, of course, was the guy. And he said, Gary, I don't get it. said, you know, what do you have that the rest of us don't have, or what are you missing? And Gary said, I guess it's that caring thing. Well, we now have a, a uh, Ph.D. Uh, project, or a, a, for any of you in criminology, um, team up with a physician and, and, and study these guys, so we, we have some actual data uh, about it. it it's tough because there are not too many of them, um, fortunately. Um, yeah. On the other hand, maybe there's just not too many in <laughs> custody. We don't know. Um, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things we don't know in this whole arena, unfortunately. <laughs> true, true. Um, well, let's, let's look at um, something that I thought uh, actually interested me when I saw the article and realized that someone who was a physician and who had studied clearly uh, at an advanced level physiology um, and had that training was looking at this. So let's look at the people who typically administer uh, the polygraph. Um, are they uh, trained in physiology, psychology, or any related subjects? Um, actually, the majority of examiners, it turns out, uh, basically complete a six-week to six-month post-high school training course in the, so, uh, in the art of polygraphy, I guess you might call it, and, and art is probably a, a, a well-placed term. They have generally no formal training in medicine, psychology, physiology, or behavior, the very disciplines on which testing is based. Unfortunately, I'm told by many law enforcement agencies and former officers that in order to save money, they designate one of their own employees to administer the test, and these people have little or no formal training. I'm not sure it makes a lot of difference uh, based on what I said about their actual so-called formal training. Um, so this, this really uh, causes a, a lot of basic confusion in, in uh, how these tests are interpreted because a lot of these tests are, are subjectively interpreted, uh, and it's how you couch the questions. If you think somebody's guilty, uh, you may uh, present uh, the question in a very confrontational way, which would evoke a more a greater physiologic response. So, uh, really, the the tester is, I believe, important 
but the uh, standards upon which they rely are really basically in many cases quite deficient. Along that same line, I mean, a lot of these examiners obviously are employed by law enforcement. Uh, do you think that there, at times there's an inherent bias? Obviously, there are independent examiners, but most people who are subjected to this, it's brought to them by law enforcement and someone sitting down asking them questions. Um, do you think there's bias in there just from that? Absolutely, uh, because uh, the majority of the examiners uh, cater to a legal system upon which their economic livelihood depends. Uh, this obviously creates a, a background for a clear conflict of interest. So because the tests are inherently quite subjective, as I mentioned, examples of such conflicts are almost impossible to confirm, and therefore I really can't begin to provide a, a very accurate answer except that the uh, basis uh, for uh, arriving at, at inaccurate conclusions is certainly uh, provided. Mm. Now, I just wanted to, to go back a second to something that's kind of a could be a follow-up here with it. So you mentioned these six-week courses. Who's, who's giving those courses? Uh, they have a, um, a national uh, uh, organization for polygraph examiners, and I assume that they're done under their auspices. I, I have not gone into any detail on this because there, there is no way that they could uh, be properly instructed, frankly, by an organization which also is beholden to many law enforcement or governmental agencies. So the, the whole thing is, is really kind of slanted against accuracy, I might say. Mm -hmm. So these could be possibly people who are just, uh, say, experienced in giving the test or have had employment doing this and are are teaching others or we don't know, basically. That's correct. Uh, That's correct. I, yeah. I, I have a friend who was a former uh, police officer and fairly high up in an organization, and he uh, he pretty much confirmed that, uh, that these things were highly biased uh, at, at, uh, at best. So, I mean, this does bring up the problem. This is, this is all fine on a kind of a theoretical basis, but we have um, real people, <laughs> um, human beings, whose liberty um, and as a, as a starting point of liberty, but their whole lives can be changed by the outcome of this test. And we have the public really believing that the tests are all but infallible. So is the test accurate at all, or? Well, yeah, this is where the rubber meets the road, actually. <laughs> how accurate are these things? If they were highly accurate, that would be great. And, and really proponents of the test, which are involved with the National Polygraph Association, uh, are, uh, do claim that it's infallible. Uh, mm. but, uh, like it's, like it's like a near 100% you'll read things and hear things like that. Uh, but acceptable, rigorous scientific studies, uh, suggest that this is not at all the case, that in a group of guilty wrongdoers, for instance, the test will disclose by scientific research uh, no greater than about 75% as being deceptive, but frankly, from my analysis, looking at the actual raw data, this figure is probably significantly lower, but it's impossible to say how much. But even worse, really, is, is all those folks who are actually truthful of that group, the test is likely to turn up so-called false positive results in as many as 50%, meaning that the test is no better than a coin flip, and that's terrible. And that means that uh, half the people undergoing this kind of testing are branded as deceptive when they're really honest. So this is a real tragedy, in my opinion. Well, dovetailing with that, obviously, you know, we, we as scientists love the scientific method, and it, it comes in many forms, and, but, uh, you know, evidence-based this and evidence-based that. How does this uh, 
just talk for about a couple of concepts that we have to deal with. And the first is this so-called sensitivity of the test. That refers to the percentage of those possessing guilt who are actually guilty that will be detected with a so-called deceptive or positive result. In the example of the polygraph test, this number, as I mentioned before, would be in the range of about 75% or even lower. On the other hand, the so-called specificity of the test refers to the percentage of those who are innocent that will be designated as being negative or innocent. As I noted in the polygraph, this figure hovers around 50%, which means that at least half of the innocent will be branded as deceptive or wrongdoers. And that really covers the instance I referred to about the man who was falsely branded as guilty where he was really innocent. And that, so that fits very well with this whole concept. Interesting, this, interesting enough, as I mentioned also before, the same criteria are applied to almost all our medical tests. I'm sure you're quite familiar with that, Doug. Uh, that, uh, are used to detect the presence or absence of specific diseases. And in general, if we were to find such false positive or false negative rates in a medical test, it would usually be deemed unacceptable and discarded from use. So that's where I, that's where I come down. That's that thing. Uh, that's exactly correct. If you've got false positives and false negatives that are way too, way out of line, the test becomes worthless. Um, well, has this been subjected to modern scientific investigation, and uh, when, and if so, what were the results of that? Yeah, actually it has, uh, as well as we can, because there are limits to how science can get to this, but uh, fairly careful studies began you know, around the 1980s and thereafter with uh, rigorously uh, controlled studies uh, where, there were, where there's peer review involved. And that, that uh, since the 1980s, uh, they started to come up with the numbers that I really just quoted um, by using these modern principles. So it's only been the past 20 or 30 years that we've actually uh, applied uh, more rigorous scientific study. Wow. <laughs> so speaking of a rigorously applied scientific yep. study, um, the National Academy of Sciences, which is the body that advises Congress on scientific matters, studied the test. Um, it's, it's, you know, been asked to look quite a bit, uh, especially in recent years, at forensic science methods um, to find out, you know, whether they're actually have of validity and how accurate they are, whether they are have a real scientific basis. So they studied the polygraph test and they issued a report in 2003. What did that report find, and what did the NAS recommend? Yeah, that was a, that, that was extremely important, at least in, in the eyes of scientists. Uh, I'm not sure about the public, however, uh, we'll, which we'll talk about. I have already. But after a comprehensive review, they issued a report stating that the majority of polygraph research was unreliable, unscientific, and biased. Those were the actual terms they used. They concluded that about 57 of approximately 80 research studies were significantly flawed. They concluded that although the test performed better than chance in catching lies, which is far from perfect, which we uh, just alluded to. Perhaps more importantly, in my opinion also, is they found that the test produced too many false positives. As a result, the test could not be re recommended for, for pre-employment screening. That's, that's a real tragedy. Uh, and not sufficiently accurate for use in, in serious criminal investigations. So the uh, conclusions, in my opinion, are inescapable that the test is is basically worthless and uh, really, at worst, misleading. Well, as you said earlier, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road, and uh, we've discussed how this test works and doesn't work and all of that, but 
How does it really affect the system of criminal justice? You know, who's the winner and the losers in, in all this? Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, fortunately they they put enough uh, stops or, or uh, uh, reservations on the test to keep it from getting us into serious, even worse trouble. Although still is bad. Individuals suspected of crimes in general may refuse to submit to these tests. The, but the mere fact that they do refuse the tests may cause them to be presumed guilty uh, in a way that uh, that, not, that even goes beyond our Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, so this in itself is a miscarriage of justice. It puts people into a, you might say, a catch-22 situation if they refuse to take the test, they're deemed guilty. If they take the test, they're running the risk of having a false positive, which I mentioned is quite frequent. So uh, this is a this is a terrible uh, dilemma for, uh, certainly for our suspected criminals as well as our uh, law enforcement uh, agencies. Well, they're also used in the private sector um, can you tell us something about that and what some of the problems are that result from that? Uh, that is correct. Uh, <clears throat> they are used sometimes in the private sector, and and that uh, obviously opens a whole Pandora's box of uh, miscarriage of uh, information. Uh, but uh, certainly, based on what I've said, their use for pre-employment screening is not justified at all either in private or public sectors. Uh, fortunately, in most cases, at least private sectors, the individuals who are uh, supposedly being subjected to testing may refuse to be tested at all. That's their, uh, their, that's their, um, uh, that's their right as a uh, public citizen. So that's not much of a problem. Um, in our society now because of that uh, option that people have to refuse the test. Um, so that, it's really the federal system that, that is the problem, and I think you could ask that, uh, that uh, federal, federal courts don't admit polygraph tests as evidence, but many states do, so it's a matter of uh, where the, the things get into the court system. And so, so that's, that's a real problem. But the federal government has also used polygraphs for its employment things, right? When people were going to be in sensitive positions, I think uh, for a time anyway, didn't the Department of Energy also use it for employment? I believe there are some uh, federal systems, certainly for uh, intelligence work uh, and uh, things where we might be concerned with uh, national uh, security and that type of issue. Uh, these are used fairly extensive in pre-employment screening. Uh, again, the accuracy is so limited and there's so much pressure placed on somebody who's depending on they're getting hired whether they pass this test. Uh, that really uh, throws a, a real monkey wrench into the situation where a test is a 50-50 chance of flunking when you're perfectly honest. So this is where I think the biggest problem in, in this kind of testing arises in our society. So this two-tiered system <laughs> where the feds say one thing and certain states say no, uh, how, how did this come about and, and do your likelihood of being exposed to this test or failing this test or falsely passing this test, does it depend on which state you're, you live in? Uh, yes, uh, it does, uh, whether or not they're admissible in court. I think each state has their own set of rules, and uh, many states, uh, perhaps most, I haven't looked at all of them, but uh, this kind of information is admissible in court, but they're under certain uh, Restrictions they have to be uh, in order to take the test in the first place. As I said, the, the individual that's being uh, charged has to uh, submit uh, voluntarily to the test, uh, and then once they do get submitted, they uh, in most cases they they can uh, re release the results 
to the jury and the court system and the judge, uh, and it can be used in making final decisions. Again, that's a travesty of justice. That, in my opinion, is not at all justified. Well, Albert and Fry, of course, gives the judge the authority to decide what comes into his courtroom, right, wrong, or indifferent. And how does that play into this in the states that say yes and the states that say no? Does the judge still have the final arbitration as to whether this evidence is going to be presented in his courtroom? Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I, I haven't really looked at all the separate states because each one has a set of their own rules. So I really can't answer that. Okay. You may, be, you may have more information on that one than I do. Well, let's, let's talk about something else. Well, what are you working on now? What kind of projects are you involved in? What do you have coming up on your plate? Uh, where, where, where does your mind go next? <laughs> well, that's an interesting <laughs> question uh, that I've been sitting down thinking about uh, for a while. And uh, actually, I, I like to consider, con continue to explore uh, misconceptions about health and medical issues, uh, one of which we've already discussed already, which is a, really in a way it's a health issue. Um, so I've, I've been uh, putting out like a weekly blog on my website, which is uh, uh, .com, uh and uh, I, I usually uh, pick uh, items of uh, of current uh, interest, uh, health issues that come out, certain individuals that are presenting false information, I try to point them out, things of that nature. So we're we're still active in the in the same arena, which is uh, to me is fascinating and, and provides an opportunity for us real docs to tell the public what is going on out there. Mm -hmm. so that's basically where I where I'm coming from at this point. Yeah, if I can, I'm going to just go back to Clyrex just for another minute or so to ask a couple of questions. Um, one would be, um, I mean, you've obviously done something by putting this information out uh, to skeptical inquiry, but what are some of the things that that our listeners uh, who may be concerned about this, what are, what are things that they might do to change this situation? Well, with regards to the uh, to the polygraph and the lie detector, they certainly <clears throat> should exert as much uh, uh, pressure on their local and state uh, governments, as well as the federal government, perhaps even more so, to uh, stop this process completely. So this is this is really a, a terrible uh, injustice to the to our public, frankly. So that's the one thing they can do. And then I've I pointed out in my two books, uh, the snake oil as well as the health tips, uh, lots of things that they can uh, do to uh, change their own individual lives as well as, uh, as uh, understanding what's out there that they should resent or uh, uh, take some action against if they can. Uh, so there are a number of things. I, there are too many that I can point out now that, I have detailed a lot of specific uh, information in both of these books that we just talked about. Hmm. I've, I've wondered if you've had blowback at all from, say, uh, the people administering polygraphs or um, the snake that will help and the organization, and 
they're, so they're, they're dependent upon each other, and there is lots of money involved, as unfortunately, as in, as in so much uh, things in life. So we're up against a very difficult problem, and I don't have any easy solutions, just except to try to point out these things, and hopefully uh, forums like we're at right now will, will start to go viral and cause these things to uh, come to our public recognition. Well, what it comes down to is out of the mouth of babes, uh, one of the great lines in the history of movies, I think, was in The Jerk when Steve Martin said, so it's a profit deal. Exactly. As best as it can. And, you know, obviously this stuff's been going on forever, and people think that, you know, patent medicine salesmen are the, the old guys back in the, the couple of centuries ago and earlier earlier part of the 20th century that wandered around selling uh, bottles of stuff that either had alcohol or cocaine in it, but it made you right. feel good, you know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, that's quite right. I remember uh, in the uh, going through the first part of the 20th century, yeah. uh, it was, uh, I remember it was Lydia Pinkham, was, that was in the late 1800s, uh, proposed a cure for menopausal symptoms, and that was 18% alcohol, right? which was really interesting. And certainly it did, it did help to uh, reduce the uh, menopausal symptoms. <laughs> I'm not sure for the reasons they proposed. And then uh, okay, along came uh, in the 1950s, I remember, uh, you'll probably recall, uh, Geritol and Hennepin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. I <laughs> and they were those two products were uh, about roughly 18% alcohol. Right. Uh, Hanacol died out. It, uh, it didn't make it, but Geritol uh, is still being sold, and it still has the same uh, height uh, surrounding it, uh, which is uh, tired blood and things of that nature, which really have no meaning at all. But the point is, is, is this really hasn't changed in 200 years. I mean, I always tell my patients who, well, you got high cholesterol, well, I want to do this naturally. You know, I usually come back with something like, well, arsenic's natural, why don't you use that? And yeah, well, right. I got this stuff in the health food store, and I always say, stop right there. I said, the second most dangerous place on earth behind the carrier deck during flight operations is the health food store, because you go in there and buy stuff that no one's looked at, and it was mixed up by a guy named Joe in his garage in a cat box last weekend. You don't know what you're taking. Why are you doing that? But... You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and it's not helped by what you see on television. No. <clears throat> You'll see these products that are that are uh, outlandish, uh, the so-called uh, dietary supplements. Use that term, which advisedly, which are uh, they they have these vague uh, statements that it's uh, it helps support circulation, it supports strong bones, things like that, which are meaningless. And the uh, FDA lets them get away with it because there was a ruling in 1994 that allows them essentially to uh, promote these kinds of products. The interesting thing about what you're, and I agree 100% what you're saying, really, uh, and that's what I've tried to point out in those two books, that, uh, the, that it's really, uh, when you see, even though I'm totally against uh, pharmaceutical companies that are the so-called legitimate companies, Doing all this incessant advertising, which they do, because I think it's a it's it's an economic injustice that they're propagating. Yeah. But they are at least when you hear uh, a list of these side effects, which they all present, you know that at least that's a legitimate product that's been through the process of FDA approval. So they knew, even though they have all these disadvantages, they have some advantages. On the other hand. Those so-called dietary supplements, in which there are all kinds of ads all over the place, don't give you a list of side effects, and they're usually not effective. In fact, almost none of them are effective for what they're talking about. And uh, they are, in many cases, they're dangerous. So if you if you see something on television that doesn't list the group of side effects, watch out. That's where the danger really is. Well, it's just big out here in California, and I basically just tell my patients, you're just making expensive urine. So uh, <laughs> why don't you stop that and get a good multiple vitamin, eat three squares a day, and walk. Yeah, but that's the best thing you can do. And laugh a lot, always. <laughs> For sure, yes, indeed. Yeah.
I do, I do think that one of the problems that we have, um, you know, is sort of falling behind in science education and uh, awareness. I mean, you you really don't need to be um, a scientist yourself to have some understanding of how science works and to give it its due. Um, and I, but I see so often where you know, the CDC will come out with a study saying X is useless. You know, you're just, it's, it's just an industry, basically, that's profiting off people and um, not, uh, not doing a thing. Um, having has no result, and yet um, the belief in this stuff is so deeply instilled um, in people, and there's this mistrust, I think, on the part of some, uh, where it, it's almost a mistrust of of, of the scientists over uh, people that know how to con them. <laughs> I'll just say, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think it goes to a really fundamental problem is that, uh, and it may go back to our school system where they don't instill enough skeptical thought, right? Mm -hmm. People don't understand uh, what, what does constitute uh, uh, logical thinking, and uh, that, that's a shame. And I don't know, I, I don't have the answer for the school system, but it's certainly lacking, uh, except for certain... Uh, people going through the, the uh, sciences themselves, like we in, the, in medicine or the physicists and the chemists and so forth, we know, we understand the principles of science. But uh, there's so much out there that's uh, science denial. We see it all the time. Look at the global warming. We see that all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we see uh, denial of evolution, which is ridiculous. We, it's, that's been quite well worked out. Satisfaction of almost all sciences out there, and there's just a number of examples that uh, where the public just is not getting the message for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I think um, with the continued efforts of of uh, people who are courageous enough to speak out about this, uh, and and that's one reason we're very honored to have you. I hear today talking because about two uh, major areas. We only we only slightly alluded to the one you do, but so I want to definitely encourage people to go to your website because um, for all of you who have been intrigued by the lie detector stuff we've talked about, that really wanted more about the health and medicine things, I really strongly recommend um, looking at Dr. Stelz's website and and seeing some of these these topics, it'll be a, a great education for you and make you a, not just a, a better consumer, but sincerely, these are things that, that can be a matter of life and death in, in some cases. Absolutely. And matter of fact, yeah, let me just throw in the last that I should have mentioned before is the whole idea of immunization, childhood immunization, uh, which, which I'm sure you have where yeah. you are, are oh, yeah. a lot of rejection, and that is a terrible injustice. Uh, you, People don't realize these horrible diseases that terrorize their grandparents mm -hmm. could be coming back to some extent or aren't doing that. I just finished uh, reading a book on the life of Jonas Salk uh, mm -hmm. and how polio was such a scourge. Uh, mm -hmm. And all these things are easily overcome by immunization in a scientific way. And yet we're seeing yeah. this tremendous denial. I'm sure you can, you can elaborate on that one. And... Uh the 1950s, of course, I remember iron lungs, and I remember them closing the city swimming pool because of uh, polio. But in 1910, in New York City, the second leading cause of death in children under the age of 14 was diphtheria. I've never seen a case of diphtheria in my 40 years of practice and training. Never. Let's hope it doesn't come back. Because it is horrible. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I sometimes think everybody ought to do genealogy and look at how many children died in families, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. before vaccinations. But 
but also just, um, you know, I had, a, I had a cousin who had polio, uh, whose, whose life is still being affected by it. Um, I, I have a friend whose, uh, father, uh, died from it in the 60s, and she and her mother and sisters were forced to move because it was the age of its day. It was not well understood. And um, and people were very fearful to have anyone uh, who'd had a death from polio in their family living in the the apartment they were living in. So it 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 can have effects. It can have the effect. It can have the effect of killing this bright young man who was her father. But it, it we often don't think about the additional effects of of how these things um, go on, just as with. In the lie detector case where something, if someone is falsely convicted, you're not just affecting that person. You're affecting the community that's still at risk from the real killer. You're, you're seeing the effect on that person's family, on their livelihoods. Um, so it's, all of these things have implications beyond just, um, someone taking a test that, that may not be doing <laughs> what we believe is doing. So um, we appreciate you shining a light on this. We really appreciate you being part of our our program today. Uh, we encourage everyone to check out uh, crimeandscienceradio.com where you'll find links um, not only to a site but also uh, books and articles about all of this. And um, this is also on on Doug's uh, site as well. Doug, you give the... Uh, URL there. Um, uh, dplymd.com. Go there. There you, you go. Can, you, can, you can link right over to it. Right. So um, thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us, and especially thank you, Dr. Jamel, for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, and uh, uh, have, a good, uh, have a good day. You too. Thanks. <laughs>